Section 12 of Brain and Personality. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Maria James. Brain and Personality, or the Physical Relations of the Brain to the Mind. By William Hannah Thompson. Practical Applications, Part 1. We have definitely concluded that the facts, both of brain anatomy and of brain physiology, indicate that this organ of the personality is never other than its instrument, while the personality itself is as different and as separate from it as the violinist is separate from and not the product of his violin. As already demonstrated, one of the properties of the personal human will is that of being a specific brain stimulus, more potent than all the afferent stimuli together in producing changes in brain matter, by which the brain acquires, and by it alone, entirely new powers or functions not possible in any other animal brain. This great truth would suffice of itself to prove that the will is a new thing, for the only other fashioner of nerve tissue is the afferent, and we have shown that in their fashioning processes the afferent and the will are generically distinct and have no relationship to each other. Indeed, as a final contrast, we may say that the afferent can do nothing new any more than a watch can. Whatever a watch does is the result of prearrangement in its mechanism. Likewise, a nervous center is so slowly organized by the mechanically acting afferent, evidently requiring the cooperation of heredity for many generations, that it will do only one thing during life and no other. But a will act, ordinarily called a voluntary act, is not often just the same thing when repeated. The variety of voluntary acts is practically unlimited on account of a profound principle underlying will by virtue of its own nature, namely perfect freedom. Having recognized what a portentous change comes over the whole situation by the entrance of this highest attribute of personality, nothing could exceed the importance of showing what, according to physiology, is the rightful place and rank of the will in a human being. This question of rank is an actual and not a theoretical one in the consideration of any subject in nervous physiology. As we have remarked before, it is only in a nervous system that the element of rank has any place. But there it is all important, because no principle is more fundamental than that of control of the working of all the lower nerve centers by the centers which are higher than they are in the scale and in the time of their development. Therefore, what is and always should be the governing power in our living selves is a proper subject of physiology as well as of philosophy. Approaching this subject, therefore, from the side of physiology, we must begin by referring to what is said on page 157 to 159 about inhibition. It is well for the ordinary reader to appreciate the importance which is attached to inhibition, as its technical term is, by physiologists in their interpretation of nervous functions. Without inhibition, no organization of a nervous system would be possible, and therefore we may explain again that by this term is meant that the operations of nervous centers, instead of being allowed to go on independently, are constantly controlled, restrained, checked, or altogether suspended from moment to moment, according to time needs, by the direct intervention, that is, inhibition, 
of other nerve centers, or even sometimes by nerves specially endowed with this restraining power. We there cited in illustration how the medulla oblongata sends a bundle of nerve fibers to the heart, called the heart accelerators, which make it beat faster, while it also supplies an important strand of nerves which bridle the heart and make it beat slowly and deliberately. But the reader may consult a modern textbook of physiology to find another striking illustration of nervous regulation of the heart, under the title The Depressor Nerve. Ever since Ludwig and Sion first discovered the function of this small nerve in 1866, physiologists have been greatly interested in its unique properties, one being, as demonstrated by its first discoverers, that it can quickly lower the pressure of the blood in the arteries all over the body from 30 to 50 percent. To understand this, it should be stated that in the medulla oblongata, there is the center governing the entire and most extensive system of special nerves which ramify on the coats of the arteries, and whose business it is to regulate the caliber of the arteries so that their diameter becomes large or small according to whether the part which the arteries supply needs more or less blood. Thus, the stomach needs nine times more blood when actively digesting its contents than when it is empty and the vasomotor nerves, as they are called, of its arteries dilate the arteries to bring more blood, or contract them to shut it off as the need may be. The function of these nerves, therefore, is of prime importance, for without their constricting action the vessels of the abdominal organs alone might relax enough to contain most of the blood of the body, as sometimes happens with quickly fatal results. But, on the other hand, during violent muscular exercise or under excitement, the blood may be driven to the heart so fast that its cavities become dangerously distended. Then it is that the depressor nerve instantly comes to the rescue. Ignoring its automatic nature, we may figuratively represent it addressing the medulla thus. Make haste! Emergency! Heart overfilling and distending so with blood that a valve may give way! Tell your vasoconstrictor center instantly to order all its nerves to relax their grip on the arteries the body over to the degree which I direct. Order the accelerator center to suspend operations and the vagus center to give an extra turn to its brakes. The medulla obeys, and the overfull heart immediately relieves itself by a general widening of its arterial channels. Thus we find this single afferent nerve capable of inhibiting the action of the whole vast mechanism of the artery constrictors, so that, when this nerve has been experimentally stimulated by an electric current, the tongue swells from its arteries being dilated, and likewise the kidneys are flushed red with blood. Also, unlike other nerves, it cannot be fatigued or exhausted by prolonged stimulation, so that in every respect it is like a sleepless, tireless sentinel posted at the great gate of the heart's outflow. These are only illustrations of the nervous mechanism before there is added to it a single one of the great brain ganglia with their high and complex functions. If in the array of the spinal centers we find at every turn special disciplinary arrangements in the shape of specific appointments, so to speak, of nerve centers with their special nerves to act as checks or controls over the whole system, we will find still plainer illustrations of the function of inhibition or control in the great army of cerebral centers. Whole tracts of nerve fibers descend from the brain, coursing along the nervous strands of the cord till each fiber ends at, but not in, a spinal nerve cell. Forthwith, that nerve fiber rules the spinal nerve cell absolutely, 
by directing how it is to act and do this or that according to the commands coming from above. The spinal motor cells move all bones of the body by the muscles attached to them, as we have said, but every such movement is subject to the behest of the brain fiber. But just as there are fibers passing from the brain above to the cord below, so all cerebral collections of gray matter have fibers coursing between them. These, as we have stated before, are called association fibers as they pass from lobe to lobe, from lobule to lobule, and from convolution to convolution. That these extremely numerous connections between the cortical centers with each other are for the purpose of bringing the different functions of each into communication and relation with the others is not doubted by anyone. According to all precedent in the nervous system, it follows that this anatomical fact indicates that the great law of inhibition must be the necessary law governing the mental operations of the brain itself. Each thinking center, acting by itself without being controlled by other centers, would inevitably act foolishly. This is the reason of the absurdity of dreams. In dreams, some nerve centers happen to awaken by themselves, and thus start ideas without any control or correction from other nerve centers which are still asleep, and which, if they were also awake, would tell them, That is not true. Stop till I think with you. The facts of delirium are also best explained as a result of the suspension, through paralysis, of their inhibitory nerves, of the control of higher centers over lower ones, which then run riot with their unchecked fancies or ideas. That this is true is proven by the fact that just such disorders can be imitated by administering agents like opium and alcohol which, we know by experiments on animals, have the same property of paralyzing nerve inhibition, whether in the brain or in the spinal cord. A well-balanced brain, therefore, is one which, when some one center starts an idea, waits till the answer comes from all the other nerve centers which have communicating fibers with that center as to what they also think about it. One other fact also should be mentioned here. As quick as thought is a proverbial phrase which a physiologist would not care to use, for he has ingeniously devised means by which to measure the rate of transmission of a nerve impulse both up a sensory nerve and down a motor one, with the result that it averages about 180 feet a second in the first and 160 in the second instance. Now some have imagined that nerve currents are somehow allied to electrical currents, but while the nerve current vibration travels not more than 200 feet, an electrical current during the same time traverses a copper wire at the rate of 180,000 miles a second. Between the two, therefore, there is a greater disparity than between the fastest of express trains and the slowest crawl of a snail. More than that, when an afferent stimulus reaches a nerve center, a marked delay occurs before an efferent response emerges from that center. As Sir Michael Foster expresses it, The advent of an afferent impression by the afferent nerve is a busy time for the center, during which many processes, of which we have very little exact knowledge, are being carried on in it. It takes some time to deliberate what it will do. The shortest period of a reflex act has also been measured in a few simple reflex arcs, only to show that the delay at the center exceeds in time both afferent inflow and efferent outflow. Hence, when several nerve centers have to adjust themselves to know what they are all to do about some afferent excitation, 
one center, sometimes inhibiting the other during the process, the final outcome may seem to be a very deliberate affair. Without knowing it, therefore, a man may have good physiology in his exclamation, If only I had stopped to think. But to return to the subject of the physiological rank of the will, as we have explained before, the higher centers do not suppress or abolish the functions of the lower centers, but restrain, regulate, and direct them instead. They, in fact, establish their prerogative to govern by governing, and when needful, they soon prove their title by doing so. We have already demonstrated the mighty work of the will in dealing with brain matter as the potter does with clay, and that it is the will alone that has that power. But on that same account, we are now to show that in thus making an instrument for the mind to use, the will is higher than the mind, and hence that its rightful prerogative is to govern and to direct the mind, just as it is the prerogative of the mind to govern and direct the body. No teaching of physiology is more important than this, and its truth is emphasized by the great facts of human life which themselves both illustrate and confirm it. Thus the rule is universal that the higher in rank is responsible for the behavior of the lower. Hence it is that with the advent of the human will there enters a principle into the living world which is entirely new, because nothing like it is recognizable anywhere else. This principle pertains, and is applicable, to man alone, and not to any other creature on earth. So transcendent in its bearings and applications is this principle, that we may well pause to note what it implies about the real nature of the human will, because, owing solely to what his will is, on man alone rests the weight of personal responsibility. Therefore, man himself cannot possibly be a living machine, however much his mind may answer to that description, for no machine can be responsible for anything, because a machine can only do what it is constructed for. Nor can a mere animal be held responsible for anything, for even though it be high enough in the scale to have a mind, and some animals certainly do have minds, yet they are virtually so fully the creatures of the mechanical afferent that they have no true power of choice. But man can always do or not do as he chooses, or, in other words, wills. Therefore this very different thing, his will, makes him different from every other earthly living thing. Therefore something is expected and taken for granted about him, which is not expected of any other being. In fact, man reigns here below only because he is responsible, and it is his will alone which makes him responsible. Human responsibility, on account of man's possession of a virtually all-controlling will, if he chooses to exercise it, is such an unwelcome doctrine to many reasoners that every effort has been made to disprove the freedom of the will. We, however, cannot follow this contention when it travels off into the far fields of metaphysics, except just enough to enable us to bring the disputant back to our province of physiology. Thus, it is contended that the human will is not free because it is itself the product of motives. As Spinoza expressed it, men are free as to their acts, but not free as to the motives which determine these acts. A motiveless will is no will at all, because a will can only act as it has a motive or motives, and therefore it cannot exist apart from motives. 
Hence, as it is the motives which make the will, man's will is not free simply because it has to submit to the strongest motive. The fatal flaw in this reasoning is that it confounds a thing with the conditions of a thing. One might as well deny the power of steam because it cannot do anything without first being confined within the sides of a boiler, as to deny the power of the will because its operations are always conditioned by motives. A steam engine may be a perfect engine, but it may work very feebly if it has not enough steam. So a man may have and may appreciate to the utmost all the motives for a given line of conduct, but may weep, not because of lack of motives, but from lack of willpower to act upon those motives. In our concluding chapter, we will allude to a great physiological reason for this too frequent lament. But, after all, the practical experience of human life is the best test of the truth of any theories, and especially of metaphysical theories. Men have never doubted the fact of human responsibility, nor the reason why every man is responsible. One illustration of this truth will suffice. Go into any court of law on earth, whether in America, in Europe, in Turkey, or in China, and see there the criminal and the judge. Can the criminal in effect say anywhere or in any language, Oh, judge, you should not punish me, a poor machine, whose efferent acts are the necessary result of my afferent impulses. Think in my case how old, how hereditary, and how natural the afferent impulse was. I was starving, and in order to eat, I stole. The reply of any judge, the world over, to such a plea would have to be the same, for there is one human fact upon which all human law is based. It assumes that there is a central power in every man which must be stronger than impulse, whether single or multiform, and that men must be punished if it is not thus stronger. The judge, therefore, answers to such pleading, You are a man, and so have the power of choice. However strong and however numerous or sudden the impulses of passion or the cravings of nature may be, you still have within you the ability to choose not to yield to those impulses, and on that account alone I am here to judge you. If you did not have that power, I could have no jurisdiction over you. If you were a mere animal, a noble lion, or a cunning ape, or anything like them, you would not be brought here before me, whatever you did. But because you are a man, and as a man have the power of choice, you now find yourself in court. Because when you were hungry, you did not act like a man, but like a hungry animal. And you shall be punished because you did act like an animal. This illustration is enough to prove at once that the power of choice, or in other words the will, in man cannot possibly be mechanical or the product of afferent impulse, because it is plainly above impulse or else it would not be expected always to rule impulse. Therefore it must be free from the tyranny of the afferent, for if it were not thus free there would be no responsibility, and if there be no responsibility then there can be no human law whatever. To admit that this principle can ever have an exception in law whereby impulse could ever lawfully become stronger than the will would be forthwith the abrogation of all law. Law's very existence depends upon the responsibility of men, because they have a will which ought always to be the master and not the slave, still less the product, of afferent impulse. Such being the presumption of all human law about the rank of the will as regards conduct, what do the facts of human life in general testify as to the relative station of the mind and the will? Chief among the faculties of the human mind are memory, imagination, speech, 
knowledge, conception, and judgment, this last leading to the mind's highest attribute, reason. No wonder that these splendid endowments should lead many to think that there can be nothing higher in us than the mind. But in the order of development, physiology emphatically states, and the whole world proves it to be true, that the mind is not only the subordinate, but well-nigh invariably the merest servant in man of the will, and by it often as despotically ruled as the mind in turn often despotically rules the body. One proof of the secondary place held by the mind, the significance of which is often not sufficiently appreciated, is the fact that the mind is easily detached from the personality, while such is never the case with the will. The mind is so detachable that it can be made to work like any other machine as its owner sees fit. A prominent body of professional men among us live by letting out the entire equipment of their mental faculties for hire. After a lawyer has accepted a retainer, he commands his mind forthwith to busy itself with all its resources of reasoning and of persuasion for the party who pays him. Even his emotions, from the extremes of pathos to those of indignation, may be pressed into the service as well. But no man can let out his will for hire, and he lies when he pretends to. The will refuses to be displaced from the personality by anything on earth, or sometimes in heaven. But this subject wears a grave aspect when it is recognized that, owing to its original prerogative, the will always holds a retainer on its reason in practical life. The reason may sometimes timidly propose to its master a series of arguments which it knows will not be welcome, only to be ordered to come back again with a more acceptable line of reasons. It is this fact which explains why opinions, either political or religious, can and do have well-defined geographical rather than mental boundaries. The Strait of Calais is like a rivulet compared to the historical separation between the English and French views, while as to the Strait of Gibraltar, Morocco is much farther away from all Europe in every belief and principle than Japan. But one especial historical illustration of this truth we had in America. Before the year 1861, a boundary, called after two surveyors, Mason's and Dixon's Lime, divided the United States, not only geographically, but politically, intellectually, and morally. Notwithstanding all the sophistries about other issues, there lay, as Lincoln said in his immortal second inaugural, as the chief cause of all the fierce antagonism between the two geographical sections of the country, a difference of opinion about the institution of African slavery. Was it because the reasoning faculties differed so between these two sections of the same English-born race? On one side of the line, most men and women reasoned, and so supposed that they believed, that slavery was the sum of all evil. On the other side, most men and women reasoned, till they supposed that they believed, that slavery was a good, if not a divine, institution. Nor was the dispute settled by reasoning. End of section 12